If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store, buysubscriptions.com slash podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we're venturing into the Australian bush in search of bandits. The figure of the Australian bushranger has become a thing of legend, an anti-authoritarian folk hero. But what was the reality of bushranging like, and how much of a threat were they? For today's podcast, I was joined by Meg Foster, a University of Cambridge historian whose research unpicks myth from reality in the story of bushrangers, and reveals that many more people were involved in the practice than you might first expect. Thanks so much for joining me, uh, Meg, to talk about the colourful history of Australian bushrangers. So before we go any further, what was a bushranger? Um, Well, I guess the potted definition is an Australian version of a highwayman. So a robber, thieves who committed robbery under arms and roamed throughout the Australian bush. Um, The bush is obviously very important to bushranging, um, and there is a mythology kind of surrounding that as well. But bushranging has actually changed over time. Um, originally, the term was coined in 1801. It was used to refer to an escaped convict who actually went to live in the bush, ran away from settlement. Um, and it was only later that it became associated with a distinct type of crime. Because when you were living in the bush, especially in the early days of the colony, there weren't really any ways to survive apart from committing robberies. And so that's how the kind of criminal connotation of bushranger came about. And that's the kind of legacy that we have today. So if we're talking about the the 19th century, really, what was happening in Australia at the time? How does this fit into a a wider story of Australia in the 19th century? Um, Well, the British First Fleet came to Australia in 1788, um, bringing huge amounts of convicts onto Aboriginal country. Um, And bushranging essentially started as a practice almost as soon as the colonists came on shore. Um, Our first bushranger was actually a convict, but not one you may expect. He was actually a six-foot-tall African man named Black Caesar. Um, So in the early days of the colony, um, there were some issues with rations and also convicts were forced to work to advance the colony to secure the kind of British foothold in Australia. And not everyone wanted to be there. Obviously, they were criminals. They were sent over as prisoners. Um, 
And so some people ran away and Caesar was one of the first to run away to attempt to live in the bush and he took a gun he stole from the early colonists and then increasingly was brought back, punished, ran away again, and then ended up having actually a gang to once again ran away, lived in the bush. Um, they weren't incredibly successful. It was quite hard to be successful at that time, but as the colony developed, knowledge of the landscape developed, interactions with Aboriginal people meant that colonists had an understanding of how to use the land increasingly, how to make it kind of their own, how to find recesses to hide. Um, and so increasingly it became more and more of an issue to the colonial authorities who really wanted to keep these convicts under control. They had kind of quite naively assumed that you send British criminals to the other side of the world and they would be dependent on the authorities for stores, for rations, for food. But um, the convicts really did surprise the authorities by going out beyond the boundaries of settlement repeatedly and increasingly as time went on. I guess that the answer to this would be different for every individual, but do we have a sense of people's motivations for becoming bushrangers? Was it about escape or was it about profit, really? It's a little bit of everything. And I think here's a really good opportunity to kind of try to separate the mythology from the reality. Um, so the bushranging mythology, which is quite um, prevalent in Australia today, is really centred around a white male bushranger and from a later period called Ned Kelly. Your listeners are probably familiar with him and his very um, characteristic armour, metal armour that's made famous through uh, Sidney Nolan's famous artworks. And, I mean, there was a Mick Jagger film featuring um, of Ned Kelly in the the 80s. So he, he's quite a famous bushranger and his story is really centred around trying to challenge the authorities who are corrupt. So a bushranger is representing an alternative form of justice, a form of justice that is actually more just than the criminal justice system as it currently stands. Um, and that's where the idea of bushranging um, really came about in Australia. That's the kind of legacy that has the most traction in Australia today. Bushrangers are Australian national heroes. I mean, you may even remember in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, there were streams of Ned Kelly's running around the opening ceremony. This is how a lot of Australians self-identify with that idea of being the underdog, of fighting against authorities, of trying to kind of claim something that's um, a form of, of freedom and liberty that would otherwise be denied to you. So it's quite similar in a way to the way that in Britain we talk about or think about, say, Robin Hood or Highwaymen, for example. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there have been a lot of um, folklorists in particular who have really tried to draw that connection quite explicitly and say, well, Highwaymen um, committed robberies and were sent to Australia as convicts. And even then, British people brought out traditions and ideas about Highwaymen and then they kind of became bushrangers and used those traditions. Um, but my research actually tries to um, look critically at that type of connection as well. So in some instances that was that was clear, but I think it's been assumed rather than actually interrogated. So my research for Newnham College at the moment in Cambridge is to try to see what were those connections? Is there some type of um, quantitative connection between the two. Were highway robbers in Britain more likely to commit bushranging in Australia? Um, and my preliminary evidence suggests not really. There doesn't seem to be that type of connection. 
although there definitely were some cultural traditions that carried over. Um, and that I think is one of the most interesting things because even when a lot of convict bushrangers in the early period, for example, committed these crimes, um, they would say that they were doing it to, to kind of share the wealth of the colony in some instances. And those instances are always really interesting because you go back and look through and it's like, actually, you robbed poor people. Poor people were often the victims of bushrangers' crimes. They were easy to pick off. Bushrangers were often very opportunistic. They would take people as they came. Um, and so even that kind of discrepancy between what bushrangers are saying about their actions and their motivations versus the reality of the crime is quite interesting because there's clearly some understanding that they may have more lenient treatment before the law or they may get more popular support if they claim to be a Robin Hood-esque character. But on the ground, it was often quite different. I want to ask you about Ned Kelly in a moment, but before I do, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could give us a sense of the Australian bush at this time, because it's very different to, say, an English forest or an English highway, isn't it? Incredibly. Um, and that was one of the things that kind of confronted the settlers when they came out to begin with. It was different to anything that ever really encountered before. But I should also say that, oh, once again, talking to the complexity of things that we use quite shorthand terminology for, the bush encompassed a huge variety of different environments. So in some instances, there were um, very close compact forests and like kind of dense shrub that was very hard to get through. In other instances, there were open grass fields that Aboriginal people had cultivated through things like fire stick farming and land practices that had been dating back tens of thousands of years. In other instances, there were kind of rainforest areas and all of this kind of very vastly different geography is kind of all known by the bush but it kind of became shorthand for any kind of um, what the British saw as uncultivated land. So land that they hadn't gone out, they hadn't cleared, they hadn't established their forms of agriculture on. So in a way, the bush is not British land cultivation. That's probably the most encompassing or specific way I can think of actually labelling it because otherwise I think it gives a kind of false idea that it's just one thing and it's actually very diverse. But it'd be quite hard to survive in, in some instances. Is that right? Yes, incredibly so. Um, But it also depended on the convicts' experiences previously. So a lot of convicts who came to Australia had urban experiences and they were often the ones who found it the most difficult to adapt to living in the bush because if you'd grown up somewhere like London, you didn't really have that type of experience on any type of land. People from rural areas usually had a bit better time adapting, understanding how to actually produce different forms of agriculture. Um, But really, I I need to stress, and a lot of the early European accounts left this out, but I need to stress how much convicts learned from Aboriginal people. Um, And so there were these instances of communication, negotiation, and dialogue between convicts who ran away and Aboriginal people that actually expanded the convicts' idea of the landscape too. So you've got the officials who have their kind of plan set by, you know, Whitehall as to what would happen in the colony. Then you've got the convicts who often push beyond the boundaries of what they were expected, went beyond the settlement, went out and actually engaged 
with Aboriginal people. Um, but of course, those interactions weren't always positive, weren't always friendly. Um, and increasingly, there was frontier violence as well. But I think that just really giving credit where credit's due in terms of how the colony was established, Aboriginal people were really crucial in giving the British settlers a lot of the knowledge that they then used to establish what is now Sydney and New South Wales. You mentioned earlier, of course, Ned Kelly. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about his story, because as you say, I think he is the quintessential bushranger in popular memory and will probably prove that he's not the only type of bushranger that there was. But what do we know about him if we start to unpick mythology and get to the reality underneath? Yeah, so um, Ned Kelly was born in the 1850s. He had Irish parents um, and that that kind of Irish heritage, Irish ancestry and Irish position in relation to the English and Irish position in relation to authority is quite important in his story and how he fashions himself. So he writes um, a letter called the Giraudry Letter when he's on the run as a bushranger and it very explicitly draws connection between the tyranny, the English tyranny in Ireland and the tyranny he experiences and his family experiences at the hands of the authorities. So Ned Kelly and his family are um, small selectors and this kind of needs to be explained in relation to land policy in colonial Victoria at that time. So previously um, people called squatters had large tracts of land. So these were kind of the colonial elite. They took the best land for themselves. But by the 1870s, 1880s, these types of land conglomerates were ostensibly being opened up to the lower classes. People could own small tracts of land. They were called selectors. Um, But, of course, the squatters still kept the best tracts of land for themselves. And so these selectors, these people, usually from a lower working class background, usually convicts or ex-convicts, working on the land started to see themselves as a kind of oppressed class of people. Essentially, they got the worst land and they were constantly being targeted by the authorities for different crimes, real or imagined. Um, And so there's a sense that really comes through in a lot of Ned Kelly's rhetoric in a lot of his writings that this is an unjust system, that he and his family are being persecuted by the police unfairly for he was accused of horse theft um, but and his family were targeted by the authorities but at the same time there's the sense that he represents a broader grievance of a whole class of people and that's one of the reasons it's been put forward um, in the kind of mythology as to why he lasted on the run for so long because he had popular support he had people wanting to harbor him wanting to give him resources and wanting to hide him from the police um, Current historians are are trying to kind of nuance this view a bit. So there's one historian who talks about the fact that in many instances it seems that the Kellys actually got what they wanted through fear or because it was actually better to do dealings with a bushranger than the police because the police weren't um, actually in the numbers or didn't have the resources to protect people. So if you did a deal with a bushranger, it was actually better for you or you'd just turn a blind eye. That could be one way of helping bushrangers as well. So the the kind of myth that Ned Kelly represented all working class grievances is, in fact, definitely a myth. Um, but there is something still there and there is something that still resonates with a lot of people 
today and that I think that strand of that class grievance and the kind of unjustness of that still pervades the kind of legend today and there is a grain of truth to that definitely. Do you think that that is why Ned Kelly is remembered when other bushrangers aren't that kind of anti-authoritarian heroism as it were? I definitely Definitely, there, that's part of it. But I also think that um, chronology has a lot to do with it as well. So a lot of people don't know that Ned Kelly is actually um, like almost two decades too late to be part of Bushranging's golden age, which is the 1860s. Um, so the 1860s saw Bushrangers not predominantly as convicts, but as the children of convicts. They called themselves the native-born. So bushranging at that time was associated with this kind of new colonial type, these people who were actually trying to assert their claim to the land to show that they had bush skills, to show that they could really make the land their own in a kind of very um, hyper-masculinist, but also very, um, it's very specific to a settler colonial context where you're not just trying to build a colony impermanently you're trying to create a whole new society and displace the Indigenous inhabitants. And so the 1860s period of bushranging is also tied to things like the gold rush in Australia. So there are stagecoaches that are robbed of gold. Um, So there are these two things happening concurrently. Then we have two decades and Ned Kelly is operating in 1878, 1879 and is executed in 1880. So his kind of the, the kind of straggler, I guess, at the end of Bushranging's age. Um, and I think that's another reason why his story gained so much traction. It's because the threat of Bushranging wasn't as real as it was in the early period. So once he and his family and his gang had been caught and executed, um, the threat wasn't there. And you also see in 1900, 1901, the colonies of Australia are federated And I think it's also to do, his story gains a lot of traction because of that impulse to create a national identity around that time as well. So the kind of problematic elements of bushranging, the kind of very real visceral fear of life and limb and property are kind of forgotten. And there's this nostalgia, there's this romanticism. And so Kelly's kind of ideally placed to kind of then be absorbed into that broader bushranging mythology around federation. And that, of course, is when you get a lot of the early histories of bushranging as well, which is definitely no coincidence. The two are definitely interlinked. The armour worn by the Kellys is probably one of the most quintessential icons of bushranging, despite the fact that not only were they the only ones to wear this type of armour, but they also wore it towards the end of their bushranging days. The armour itself was crafted from bits of kind of um, metal stolen from agricultural machines, so like plows and things like that. And it was very crudely kind of bashed into a form of like very rude, crude, curved metal um, that served as like a, a body plate and there was a plate further down. But most quintessentially there was a helmet that was kind of rectangular with like a very thin slit rectangular box for the eyes and this armor was incredibly heavy um it's astounding that they were actually able to move in it um and also it wasn't very well fashioned 
either. So part of the metal was very thin in places and couldn't actually be bent. Part of it was quite thick. um, And so it would have meant that it was incredibly difficult to try to balance. But the metal armour came in towards the end and is one of the reasons in folklore that the Kellys actually were able to survive as long as they did for a gun battle at the the rural town of Glenrowan in Victoria. A lot of the gang died and Ned Kelly was then captured there with wounds from the battle. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. What I really hope to do is to allow people to see these amazing figures on their own terms and try to see how they would have seen their actions and how they understood their place in the world. And then by extension, we can understand something more about ourselves as Australians, but also the kind of interconnected nature of Australian history with other parts of the world. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, of course, although although Kelly may have been the most famous bushranger, of course, he wasn't the only one, as we've discussed. And your research reveals that bushranging also wasn't only just a pursuit for white men. What kind of um, people have you uncovered being involved in bushranging? Yeah, so it's actually a lot more diverse than you would immediately think and definitely a lot more diverse than mythology allows. Um, so in my recent book, I look at Aboriginal bushrangers Chinese bushrangers, female bushrangers, and an African-American bushranger as well. So these are people who challenge colonial society, not just through their criminal exploits, but because they really challenge understandings about race and gender at that time too. And that's the reason why they were written out of the mythology. But I think that they also can provide really interesting windows into colonial society that would otherwise be closed because those instances of rupture and crisis surrounding their activities just really bring the fault lines of colonial society into stark relief. I wonder if you could give us some examples of um, some of the more surprising bushrangers that we might not expect. Yeah, of course. Um, So uh, there's one bushranger called Black Douglas and he operated on the Victorian goldfields of the 1850s. Um, he has all these terrible crimes attributed to him. He's meant to have murdered a white woman at a place called Avoca. Um, he's meant to have committed countless robberies. But when I, my research into him kind of indicated very quickly that he actually wasn't this character. He, he kind of became a colonial boogeyman in the imagination of the time. But going back through the records, he was only ever convicted of drunken disorderly conduct, sly grog selling, um, and two very minor assaults. Encountering the material in the 1850s, where he's the most infamous, he's just he's constantly referred to as 
black Douglas. They don't give him any type of racial characterization. And that's very unusual because people on the goldfields made these distinctions all of the time. There were Aboriginal people on the goldfields too. They were constantly talking about Maori people, Africa, they talked about so-called African blacks. And yet with Black Douglas, he was always just referred to as black. And so my automatic question was, well, why? (laughs) Why was he just known as black? And through doing more research, I realized that actually this story, this colonial boogeyman story really serves a colonial purpose. And that purpose is to try to write a lot of the topsy-turvy understandings of race and gender the goldfields presented. Um, So Aboriginal people were also looking for gold. In some instances, they claimed very explicitly sovereignty over the land and demanded that settlers kind of pay some type of recompense for that or engage in kinship obligations. So that was quite disturbing. Everyone had an equal chance of success on the goldfields. So that included... Chinese miners as well, but it also included women. Women were in many cases actually mining alongside their male counterparts. And so this was an incredibly diverse and an incredibly, um, I guess, problematic population for a lot of really well-established colonial ideas about racial and gendered hierarchies where white men were at the top. They were the ones who were entitled to the wealth and riches of new colonies, but also a kind of a context where women were deemed to be fragile, very inferior. And so the Black Douglas mythology really helps to reestablish those ideas because for one thing, Douglas is meant to be a thief and to be murderous, but also this story that gains the most currency, this one about the murder of a white woman, that's particularly important because it makes him even more monstrous because he's targeting this vulnerable white woman. It also helped to justify a lot of the activities of miners on the goldfields at those times too, because one of the things that is kind of written out of a lot of the histories of this period is that these gold fields, these gold rushes were incredibly tumultuous places where law and order were really fragile. And in a lot of the historiography, Um, Australian historians really position Australia as the kind of more orderly counterpart to the kind of the American gold rushes where lynchings were quite common. Um, But in fact, the Australian gold rushes could have very well gone that way as well. There were moves towards mob justice. There were very few police people around at the time. Commissioners um, of the gold fields were more concerned in many instances with taking miners' licences and with protecting the population, or at least that was the perception. Um, And so miners actually rose up together. Like It's kind of hard to say exactly how many. It seems between 100 and 300 miners rose up and captured Black Douglas and his gang. And this is kind of used as an example of, well, see, we, one, have to mobilise for our own protection because where were the authorities catching this awful person but b we're also you know defending one of our women now one of our women was murdered therefore what we're doing is righteous and morally just but this murder of a white woman was a complete fabrication it wasn't something that Douglas actually did at all 
Throughout this conversation, it seemed that a huge aspect of this is is the mythology that surrounds it all. And at the time, how was that created? Was that through newspapers? Was it through word of mouth? Do we have any sense of that? Definitely. Um, It seems like it was a combination of all of those things. So there were a lot of early newspapers um, and the goldfields were quite a shifting context. Some settlements would kind of grow up very quickly. A huge rush of people would come and then they'd be exhausted and people would move to a new place. But there were early instances of trying to create local newspapers. And so they're some of the key sources that we have left. But also we have settlers' reminiscences and from them we really get a sense of, as you say, word of mouth, people hearing as soon as they stepped off the ship sometimes of the nefarious deeds of Black Douglas and shaking in their boots as they actually made it to colonial soil. And I'd say that those types of stories are really important for being almost kind of cautionary tales to be watchful of your life and your property because there were a lot of bushrangers on the gold rush, even if it wasn't actually Black Douglas committing these crimes. Gold rushes, gold fields were places where there was a hell of a lot of crime. (laughs) And so these stories did speak to a broader truth, even though the mythology about Douglas itself is baseless. So so it it was a real threat as well as a kind of imagined cautionary tale. How many bushrangers were there? Do we have any sense? It definitely was a significant threat. It's hard to say exactly how many bushrangers there were because of, once again, the kind of shifting nature of the goldfields and also issues of identity that kind of come with that as well because it was one of the first contexts where people didn't know who their neighbours were. You could just get strangers coming in and in Victorian society at that time, in colonial society at that time, your connections, your social networks, that was very really key to establishing your reputation, who you wanted to interact with. But on Goldfields, those types of connections really fell apart. Um, so that, that context makes it quite difficult to know the actual extent of the crime. But considering the extent that it pervades the records, it was a very real threat. Crime was a very real threat. Um, and that means that exactly there, there is a broader context in which that threat is real. But my interest kind of comes with why do you single out one black man as the kind of epitome, the symbol of that, when he, in fact, is really a kind of a, a drunkard rather than a murderous, violent thief? You, you mentioned Aboriginal bushrangers, and I wonder if you could give us some examples. Uh, So the Aboriginal bushrangers I look at, um, I mainly look at from the 1860s onwards, and that's quite a conscious choice because in the early period, crimes that might be considered bushranging through a European lens are actually forms of resistance fighting against um, colonisation, against European incursion into Aboriginal territory. Um, So there definitely are instances of Aboriginal people using weapons, stealing goods, things that we would consider to be typical bushranging crimes. But by about the 1860s in New South Wales, frontier warfare had largely ceased. And from that period, you can actually see um, the the bushrangers I look at are definitely tapping into bushranging as we understand it today. So one of those bushrangers is a Waramai Aboriginal woman called Mary Ann Bug. 
Um, so Bug was born in New South Wales and she was the daughter of a convict overseer of the Australian Agricultural Company and a local Waramai Aboriginal woman. Um, and she was also more famously known as the partner of a white male stranger called Captain Thunderbolt. Um, and so for several years in the 1860s, they were operating together on the run from the law. Um, in the kind of more conventional or rather traditional histories about Thunderbolt that have existed, she's been on the sideline of his story, kind of like a, a loyal helpmate in the background of the action but she was actually an incredibly intelligent, incredibly active, incredibly savvy woman herself. She'd been sent to Sydney to be educated when she was younger as a child. Her father had sent her to Sydney. Um, and that was very unusual for the rural population at the time. So Marianne knew how to read and write and Thunderbolt didn't. And yet by the end of their time together, Thunderbolt could sign his name. So it looks like she actually taught him to write. Um, she also was said to have actually participated in some of the robberies herself. Um, and in one instance, she is heavily pregnant and she's captured by police who are originally looking for Thunderbolt and his gang. They're, the other male bush rangers have scampered off. Marianne's there with her child, pregnant, surrounded by stolen goods. And she actually is meant to have leapt off her horse on an, onto the police officer, attacking him, tearing his shirt to ribbons and challenging him to single combat and taunting him with cowardice for capturing her and not Thunderbolt. So, of course, there is definitely an element of colonial exaggeration, drama, theatricality about that story, but it, it seems that something of like this happened. Um, and... She's also incredibly interesting for the way that she knew how to really play to different audiences as well because by the time Marianne is actually captured, she's brought to court on a charge of vagrancy for not having any kind of formal place of residence or means of support. She's dressed as a respectable lady. She claims that she is not a vagrant as her husband, Frederick Ward, keeps her. Um, and this is despite the fact that she and Ward never actually married, um, and despite the fact that previously she'd actually told the police herself that she'd engaged in several robberies and had also done other masculine pursuits like hamstring cattle with a sheer blade and had basically traversed most of New South Wales <laughs> as well. So she's a person who really was hyper-aware of her public image and when to kind of define herself by her actions or to play into colonial ideas. In this instance, so in the 1860s, it didn't work. She was actually taken and imprisoned. But there was actually a big um, kind of backlash in Parliament against her imprisonment. Um, but it wasn't for the reason we might expect. So at the time, Aboriginal people were, were exempt from the Vagrant Act, the idea being that Aboriginal people were supposedly naturally nomadic and so to deprive them from wandering about their native home was kind of unjust or tyrannical. Um, and what's interesting here is that these parliamentarians drew on essentialist ideas about Aboriginal people and paid absolutely no attention 
to any of the actual facts of her case, the fact she was educated, the fact she had actually undertaken a lot of these robberies herself and was an active participant in her partner's criminal dealings. But what's interesting for me as the historian is going back and looking at the arguments that are being made, the way that she's being characterised, and also the way that she is actively engaging in certain characterizations herself and whether they're successful in certain instances or not. So how did bushranging come to an end, as it were? What led to the demise of the Australian bushranger? Um, This is a very complicated question. It's one that I've been struggling with because it's hard to say what the end point actually is. So most historians do look at Ned Kelly and say his execution in the 1880s, the end point of bushranging. But then we have an Aboriginal man in 1900 called Jimmy Governor. Um, he murders the white um, women and children, of the family of his employer, and then goes on the run, robs people, and explicitly calls himself a bushranger, very explicitly makes that connection himself. And at the time and since, he's, he's still quite an infamous figure in the colonial Australian imaginary, he's solely been known as a, a mass murderer. But he self-identifies as a bushranger and he's also um, really tapping into a lot of the popular culture that's starting to emerge on bushranging as well. So it seems likely that he actually read about Ned Kelly, even though he was only five when Ned Kelly was executed, there was still in local newspapers kind of um, reminiscences and local histories about Kelly's exploits. He also seems to have read um, some Harriman and cowboy literature as well, um, which is quite interesting. Deadwood Dick novels, Jimmy Governor claimed to have been inspired by in his exploits as well. And so I look at Jimmy Governor not as a bushranger, not to condone or explain away the atrocities that he committed but rather to try to understand the way that he saw himself and also kind of bring back um kind of one of the great ironies which is that Jimmy Governor has been removed from the bushranging tradition because of committing murder and yet other bushrangers who were celebrated committed murder as well. Ned Kelly murdered police officers. There's evidence that he actually tried to derail a train that was carrying civilians as well as special police officers, reporters. That train contained at least two women. The derailing was prevented, but at the same time it shows that kind of murderous intent. And so murder itself is not enough to stop someone from being mythologised, lauded, turned into a hero as a bushranger. It's definitely something else. Um, And so that's why I include Jimmy Governor in my my book on these kind of other bushrangers, as I term them. Um, But if you want to go even further, there are also cases in the 1920s of um, a white woman, for example, called Elizabeth Jessie Hickman. And she um, has actually been working in kind of performances, rodeo-style performances, travelling around New South Wales. She's meant to have um, potentially killed her husband. There's a bit of a grey area there. But she definitely engaged in 
cattle rustling, stealing cattle, and then kind of went and lived on the run. She had a certain cave that was meant to be a hideout. And in the local community today, she's remembered as a bush ranger. And yet she never committed robbery under arms. So she never actually held someone up at gunpoint, which is meant to be the typical bush ranging crime. I mean, she's decades after Kelly, so she's meant to have been well after bush ranging formally came to an end. And yet there's something there. She still is known as a bush ranger today. And so by this point, I kind of see bush ranging as being more of like a kind of a skill set and a personality type almost than a specific type of crime. That I think leads me quite nicely onto my final question, which is um, we've kind of discussed this throughout the conversation, but what place bush rangers hold in the Australian popular imagination today still and also how you would want to amend that image of the bush ranger with your research yeah um so I, as I've mentioned before it is very unlikely that anyone in Australia today would be unaware of bush ranging most people see bush rangers as national heroes and there's actually popular government support for that as well. There's a there's a government webpage about bush rangers. A lot of Australians self-identify <clears throat> with the bush ranging mythology, with the kind of mystique, the idea of the underdog, the fighting against adversity, the idea that you're somehow making the world a better place through bringing about a more kind of rough but also a very real form of justice. Um, that mythology is so pervasive that there are many studies of the sociology of bushranging in Australia today. Um, so there are even studies about people with Ned Kelly tattoos are apparently more likely to die violent deaths than the regular population. So there is definitely a pull. Bushrangers still sell as well. If we look at it commercially, the amount of films, the amount of books that have been written for popular audiences. Bushranging is a part of the Australian national mythology. You can't show someone a Ned Kelly's helmet and they not know who it is unless they are quite new to the country. Um, my research tries to really challenge and destabilise our understanding of bushranging as a white male phenomenon because it categorically wasn't. Even if you look at the numbers and say, well, there were more white men committing bushranging than these other racial or gendered groups, when you look back through the records, the very tangible, visceral fear that people felt about these other bushrangers and the extent to which they really did have influence, discussions about these figures changed legislation, led to intense parliamentary debate, changed the whole composition of certain communities and had enduring legacies that remain till the present day. So you can't say that these people are without influence. And so I think what I really hope is to show that while this national tradition does have broader transnational origins, but I also want to kind of be cautious about saying that, oh, we can just add these people to the pre-existing bushranging tradition and it's all great because we were always diverse and isn't it great we've got this multicultural history now because uh, racial and gender difference defined these bushrangers' life, lives. It defined how they were treated. It defined 
the barriers and the boundaries that they pushed up against. And so I think uncritically kind of adding them to that mythology is also doing them a disservice. What I really hope to do is to allow people to see these amazing figures on their own terms and try to see how they would have seen their actions and how they understood their place in the world. And then by extension, we can understand something more about ourselves as Australians, but also the kind of interconnected nature of Australian history with other parts of the world. That was Meg Foster. Her book on this subject, Boundary Crosses, The Other Bush Rangers from Australia's Colonial Past, is set to be published in 2022, so keep an eye out for that. And if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen, or recommend us to your friends, as that really helps us to spread the word. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on the 1964 Tokyo Olympic Games. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.